She's not saying anything right now. Steph, say some words if you some want. Some words, some words. No? Do, 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 do. <laughs> I think it's that volume control. Oh, there you are. Did you get words? She was saying some words, some words, but to the tune of the Jurassic Park yeah. theme, and it was pretty fantastic. <laughs> Thankfully, that's recorded. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you should know the golden rule. If you sing it, Tom will put it in the bloopers. Anytime I make up a song, it's typically to the Jurassic Park theme song. I don't know why. Because you live a good life. <laughs> I live a Jurassic life. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So Chris, how are you doing? I am doing well. How about you? I'm fabulous. So I'm still continuing that journey where I'm still in Park City and snowboarding. I haven't seen a moose yet, which I'm really hoping to see at a safe distance. Uh, yeah. But I... <laughs> are, there, are you in like a populated area or is, is it reasonable to expect to see a moose where you are? Yeah, there's, there's usually a fair amount of them, especially when you're out on the mountain, like skiing or snowboarding. There's a chance that you may see one as you're like in the lift or gondola going over a larger section or more remote section of the mountain. And that's a nice safe distance if you're up and removed from them. So yeah, that would be ideal. Yeah, I saw some last year, which was epic because I was hoping the entire time to see one and it wasn't until like the last like two days. And then I saw a family in like two consecutive days. So that was really fun. So I'm hoping that happens again because they're just awesome creatures. They're so big. They're really cool. But I also heard that you have some news that you're going to share with us. I do. Um, well, after seven absolutely wonderful years here at ThoughtBot, I've made the very difficult decision that... Uh, it's time for me to go and find some new adventures. So uh, my last day at ThoughtBot will be two weeks from now. But for the time being, for anyone out there that's listening to this and receiving this news through the podcast, I will be sticking around and still chatting with you for at least uh, some number of weeks moving forward. But yeah, that's my new story, which is very different than the past seven years where that wasn't the case. I have such a tough time with this news just because it's just it's so sad that you're leaving because you have been so incredible to like ThoughtBot and especially my journey here at ThoughtBot as a developer. But then I'm also really excited for you and like the journey that you're embarking on and what you're going to do next. So I'm kind of curious, how do you do you feel like talking about what you're thinking about doing next, like what you think your next stages look like? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to chat a bit, to be honest. I am not super sure what is next. Partly, I'm trying to take some time off and just relax and reset. And my wife is actually in a job transition right now as well. So we're going to take a little bit of time together before she starts her next role. So yeah, it's a little bit about just taking some time and then thinking for me a little bit more broadly about what I do want to pursue, which is really frankly, very odd because for many years more than the seven that I've worked here, working at ThoughtBot has been the obvious clear answer to the thing that I want to do. Before I joined ThoughtBot, it was an absolute dream of mine that I frankly had no expectation would come true. And then I joined the team and it has been absolutely fantastic. I've gotten to do so many interesting and varied things. I've gotten to work with so many different companies and the team here at ThoughtBot is just incredible. And so leaving that is truly terrifying and I don't think it's realistic to have an expectation that I'm going to find anything better out there in the world. But for a little while, I want to take a step back and just think about what it is that I do want to do. And quite possibly that might include coming back to ThoughtBot someday, presuming you all would have me. But um, yeah, happy to answer any questions. 
Well, I can answer that question, and I'd be in a heartbeat <laughs> anytime you want to come back. I'll speak for ThoughtBot on behalf of this, and certainly the bike shed. Excellent. And my expectation is that you will be running the show within, I don't know, six to 12 months. Uh, so that makes sense that you would be in that hiring position to make the ultimate decision. Yeah, we do have that transition plan that you and I have chatted about where I am really grateful and excited that you are staying on for a while and that you and I are going to get to keep having these lovely conversations. And then we'll start to likely interstitial some more interviews and I'll start to, I guess, look for another co-host, which just sounds like such a, a daunting task. But it's something that you went through not that long ago, about a year ago when you were bringing me onto the show. So I have some of your experiences to kind of lean on and how you went about that. And let's see. So that's a year ago. How many bike shed episodes have you recorded it's probably been around like 70 or 80 sounds about right i started in august of 2018 so a little less than half of that year and then all of 2019 and i don't know we probably do like 48 a year or something like that so maybe up to 70 something like that it's been a bunch it's been fun i've enjoyed it and i hope to continue enjoying it for some period of time me too. I really love that you're also taking that time off where you're sort of stepping back to figure out what you'd like to do next. Because seven years is really impressive to stay with one company. As developers, we tend to transition jobs every, I think the average is closer to like two to three years where we'll join a new company. So the fact that you've been here for seven years really speaks a lot to the culture here at ThoughtBot. And then the fact that you've enjoyed your time here and that you've had a lot of growth with the company and then to take that time to say, well, I've done this for a long time. Let me reconsider what I want to do next. Because I think it's really easy to sort of like just reach out and get that next job. So I, I think it's very cool. And I'm excited to talk more about that journey and see how it goes and what you find interests you now that you have time to reset. Yeah, for so long, it has just been obviously true to me that this is the thing that I do. And it has always felt very right. And it's almost partly due to that, that I want to take this time to do something a little bit different, a little bit weird, somewhat scary. I tend to not do scary things. I tend to not, I'm a very risk averse person in general. And so this is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. And yeah, it's an adventure, but here we go. Well, I guess the big question as first is, do you think you're going to stick with like coding and software? Almost certainly yes. Although the exact form that that will take, I'm not sure. There's sort of a, a like fork even within the coding world of going more towards management and that end of the spectrum or going towards the like distinguished engineer. I really just like to make stuff and I feel myself very sort of pulled between the two of them. Coding definitely feels right. I love making things and the like ability to make on the web is just so, so tangible. I can do it on my own. I can do it with a team. Like previously, I was an engineer and there was no way to do that on my own. That had to be in the context of a bigger organization and everything was slower and more bureaucratic and all of those sort of things. So I would be very surprised if my next adventures take me away from coding and take me away from the web specifically, because that's, that's the aspect of coding that speaks the most to me. Like I don't expect to be designing an operating system later this year. That doesn't feel like a, a me adventure. Well, I think the web development community is certainly a better place with you in it. So I'm excited that that's where you're staying. Oh, thanks. But yeah, like I said, I don't really know that much about what's going to happen. And uh, I have two more actual weeks here at ThoughtBot. And then, uh, like we said, we'll still be chatting for some period of time after that. So I think we can certainly revisit this conversation over the coming weeks. But uh, I don't know, not too many more details to share. But yeah, that's sort of what's new in my world. So uh, what's been going on with you? Well, other than mourning the fact that you're eventually leaving and phasing out of the bike shed, uh, which has been on my mind lately, 
But on another note, the team that I'm working with right now has some really nice, fun, healthy habits that I've started picking up on and would like to carry forward to other teams. And I've just really enjoyed them. And I realize I've been thinking about them enough. I thought it would be fun to bring them here and share them with you because it's something that I haven't experienced with other teams and what they do. And they're really kind of small in what they do. So to give an example, probably one of my favorites is when we have our technical discussion meetings or if we have retro or if we're having some sprint planning, we'll often take deep breaths before a meeting. So we'll have like this little moment of Zen where everybody takes like a deep breath or two and then we'll start the meeting. Or if we're doing technical discussions and we're switching topics, so we will use story points for our tickets. So if we're transitioning from one ticket to the next, we'll pause and take a deep breath or two and then move on to the next one. And it's such a small little habit that I really enjoy that I think embodies sort of the state of mind that this team has when it comes to being very mindful and approaching everything with a very positive outlook. So that's one of the things that they're doing. And then some of the other stuff that we've had really nice conversations around and building some habits around is enforcing the idea that not all of our important work is done in a code editor. So in one of our recent retros, it came up that it felt like the last sprint or two had been kind of heavy in meetings. And that certainly rang true for me as well, where I felt like we've been having a number of them and my work was being broken up and I wasn't getting as much coding done and it led me feeling less productive. But all the meetings that we were having felt very productive and felt like they were moving us closer to the goal that we were looking to achieve. So I didn't think it was necessarily the meetings that we needed to adjust. And someone on my team brought up the very wonderful idea and sort of to reinforce the idea that not all of our important work is done in the code editor. So if you spend the day and it's helping others, maybe it's PR review, maybe it's in meetings, you've still been a very productive member of the team. And that's something that I will struggle with at times where I'm like, oh, I didn't write any code today. And that stresses me out. Or I'll feel like if I didn't write as much code as I'd wanted to that day, I feel like I didn't do my job. And so that was a really nice sort of reminder to think about the fact that not all of our important work is done writing code. And then there's another fun one. I don't think I've mentioned this before, but our product manager, I forgot the exact details around the situation, but I had apologized for something and they made the comment. They're like, well, there's no apologies in hacky sack. And I just looked at him. I was like, what? (laughs) And they explained to me that uh, playing hacky sack, there's no apologies because everybody's just in a circle and you're doing your best. So he brings that same energy to our sprinting as well, where there's no apologies in sprinting because we're all doing our best. And I really appreciated that mindset as well. I don't know if it's also part of my personality, but I will tend to say I'm sorry for stuff. And that's one thing that I'm working on is trying to apologize less for things where it doesn't really need an apology. It's sort of like a knee jerk reaction that I'll do. So yeah. Oh, and I do have one more. (laughs) We have lots of good healthy habits on this team. So one of the other things the team has started doing is where we'll rotate the roles on the team. So we typically had one person that was running retro and would ask the questions and also take down all the notes. And we decided it would be great if that scribe role didn't always fall on the same person each time. So we've started rotating the person who's taking notes for a meeting, whether it's in retro, whether we're writing down technical details. And then also we have demos where we'll show off to the rest of the company the work that we've completed. And we started rotating the person that is demoing that work that's been done, or maybe they've been doing that in the past, but but that is one of the habits that they have where they will rotate who is doing the demonstration. And I think that's just awesome because getting up in front of people and demoing work, I think can be challenging and a bit nerve wracking. And I think it's a great skill for those who are interested to sort of work on and then also get to showcase the stuff that their team's been doing. So it builds up those extra skills outside of being a developer. 
So yeah, those are some of the the really great habits that my team has that I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately and really appreciating. Well, sound fantastic. And it's interesting to me, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that you only get to focus on those sort of micro optimizations when everything else is is gelling, when the work is happening, when the system is stable, and then you get to focus on because those are the sort of things that are the quickest to fall to the wayside when we're in emergency mode or we're putting out fires or we're not shipping code fast enough. And so the idea that you're thinking about these things that you're able to instill and then reinforce those sort of habits is wonderful. And frankly, each of them sounds fantastic. I really like the couple of breaths in between story pointing. That one's fantastic. I mean, I, I wouldn't do story pointing, but if you're gonna, definitely take some some deep breaths between each story pointing. Yeah, I realized when I said story points, I was throwing a slightly contentious point in there. But yeah, I also really love a lot of the habits that they have. And I think that's an interesting point as to whether focusing on these habits and sort of like building these sort of habits and building them into the workflow or into the team structure is a sign that the team is doing really well, which I do think this team is doing incredibly well. And I'm really enjoying working with them. But I also wonder if it could be the other way around where you start with a lot of these healthy habits and that will help you build a team that can then feel in a great, productive, safe space to also practice a lot of these habits. So I don't know which one would necessarily come first. I do think in this case, we are in that space where we get to focus on a lot of the stuff because everything else is going so well. But I wouldn't want to wait till a team is there to then implement some of these practices. Yeah, actually, now that you say it that way, that that does sound true to me. And when I think about bringing about change within an organization or moving to that, we're shipping features, everybody's everything's going really well, and everyone's very happy with the way things are moving. It's never a single thing. It's always a number of little things. It's the way that we're developing. It's the way that we're communicating. It's the way that we're deciding the work to do. It's all of these little things stacked up on top of each other that if you looked at any one of them in isolation, like just taking a few deep breaths does not sound like an important thing, but as part of a bigger system of how we work uh, can be. So the idea that don't wait until everything's great to do the little stuff, I I like that takeaway better than the earlier takeaway that I had. One of the other signs that I've noticed that I think uh, shows that a team has really wonderful communication is that we're able to hand off work to each other pretty seamlessly. So being on this team, there's a number of us that are transitioning and going on vacation back and forth. And so we'll often start work, but then can't push it all the way over the finish line. And that has gone very well, where we're like, hey, I'm in this point on this particular ticket. And then is there someone else that would be willing to take it over for me? And I love that for two reasons, because there's one, there's a communication and context that most people are everybody on the team has that they're willing to like pick it up and then push it over the finish line. So I love when the team's sort of in sync and very connected on what's being worked on. So it's easy to pick up on that work versus if the team is very spread out on the feature work that's being done. And then the other one is it shows that there's no ownership of that code. We're very much like we are all in this together. We are working on this feature. And if you need to put it down for a while, I'm happy to pick it up and work with your code. And so I I love the whole just collaborative process that shows that the team is doing an excellent job of communicating. But kind of enough about what's going on in my world. What's going on in your world? Well, other than other than the big thing that we talked about earlier, my work with the team that I'm on right now has been lately continuing to focus on testing and the testing infrastructure and all of that is one of the things that we spend a good amount of our time on. There were actually two different testing-related things that came up this week that I found kind of interesting. One was the usage of snapshot tests. Have you worked with snapshot tests at all? Is that the one where it, it takes a picture of the screen and then shows you... Like, is it kind of like UI testing or where it's showing you the design? 
It can be UI testing, but in this case, I've only seen it in the context of React, although I think it's a feature of Jest, the test runner. But it basically allows us to serialize a representation of something and then save that off. And then the next time you run the test, make sure that the serialization is the same as what we've recorded previously. So you can do it with like React components and you can say, given that you pass these props, I expect it to be the same. And the same in that case is this serialized representation. But you can also use it for basically anything that you can turn into a consistent deterministic representation. So it could be like an object literal that should have the same keys. But that's the idea of it. Is that serialized representation, is it testing like the CSS and everything making sure that the design stays the same as well? Or is it not quite that detailed? Well, you ask a very interesting question. It can sort of be used for that, but it can be used for that in probably a more indirect way. So the class names, assuming that that's the way that you're doing styling, the class names will be a way that you're encapsulating the CSS. So it's not actually the styles that are applied. It's just the class names. But if you're using traditional class naming where you're semantically trying to describe what the thing is, then the class names will be representative of that. We're using styled components on this project. So we end up with these auto-generated hashed class names that are essentially a checksum of the styles that are being applied, but we're not concretely locking in the style. So this is, although the name is snapshot testing, it's a snapshot of the thing that we're trying to look at, not a visual related thing. Okay, so going back to your original question, I'm going to say no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't I haven't worked with this, but it sounds really interesting. It is. When they first came onto the scene, which I think was a couple of years ago now they were introduced in Jess, I was like, oh, okay, this sounds really interesting. And my experience now is solidly mixed. This week I've encountered both snapshot tests that I found to be... I would say more burdensome than they were worth. Particularly, I made a number of refactoring type changes in the app. We had a component that was not quite doing what we thought it should, so we deprecated it. And I was going through the process of removing it, which meant changing out the code, but in a way that was ideally invisible to the end user. So it affected the visual state of stuff on the screen, but it also there were some side effects and things that were not behaving the way we wanted. So my refactoring from a user perspective should change nothing but all of the snapshot tests broke. And so what that says to me is that they were deeply coupled to the implementation details of these components. And that was not great. And particularly the way that you fix a snapshot test is you just hit the U key on your keyboard for update. And then it record, It says, okay, the new snapshot is the current one. Therefore, we match. We're good. But ideally, you're supposed to like read them and look at them and visually compare the lines, basically like a diff, and say, do I agree with the new version? But they end up being gigantic and very hard to read when used for components. And in most practical cases, folks just say like, yeah, update, sure, seems good now. And they don't end up being that feedback mechanism that we would want tests to be. Yeah, I was just imagining when you're saying you would typically look at the diff and I was like, oh, gosh, like that sounds terrible because I can't imagine it's very friendly to look through and see the changes and verify that's correct. No, especially not in more complex components that have like context around them, like React context or styled components wrapping them or just a whole bunch of stuff that make it very, very hard as a reader of that test to look at it and be like, is that is that a good change? Like the styled components ones are really interesting because it's one hex hash name, just a string of characters, and then it turns into a different one. And I'm like, is that bad or good? I don't know. I'm not sure <laughs> which it is. <laughs> 
When you mentioned that you have mixed feelings, so in the positive case, have you seen it where it's actually been helpful and it's sort of pointed out an error and that's been legible to understand why something changed and why it failed? Yes. So the counterpoint, we have this component library that we're building and there's been some work that's been done to make it as small as possible as an NPM package to bring into the downstream applications that use it. And so there's a fancy rollup config that was used. Rollup is, I think, an alternative to Webpack or other bundlers like that, but it's it's particularly useful in the context of building a library or a package like this that's meant to be used by something else and make it as small as humanly possible. And as part of that, we want to be very careful about the things that we're exporting from the top-level namespace. So what are we making available as part of this package versus what are internal development-only classes and functions and things like that? And so one of the things that the team did is create a file which is a serialized or a snapshot test essentially around the names of all of the exported components. And that one is very, very clear. Like I accidentally included an additional thing in the export list that we did not want to. And the snapshot test failed for that. When I looked at it, it was very clear to me what was wrong. There was a new thing that I was like, oh, I definitely don't want to export that. That's not for other people to use. That's just for inside. And that one was immediately clear, gave the feedback I wanted. Very, very useful. Oh, that's that's far more expansive than I was imagining for like the snapshot testing, because I'm still thinking about it from what you described earlier, where it's testing from the user perspective, did something change? And did we want that to change or not? And in this case, you're actually checking to see if you accidentally exported something. And what's the harmful case again, when you were saying you exported something you shouldn't or didn't want to? The idea is that we are leaking implementation details at that point. So like we have a bunch of base classes within this component library that we use to build up the things that we actually want to expose for people to use. So like you can use the button component, but you can't use the base button, which we then have a bunch of variants and extends on. We want to hide that implementation detail. So in a sense, I actually like there are users of this component module and we want to make sure that the interface that we expose to them is what we want it to be. So it's very similar, but in this case, it actually, in my mind, works. Whereas other snapshot tests, particularly in React components, I found them to be, most folks don't pay attention to them is how I would describe it. And when they fail, we just kind of say, yeah, sure, update or not. But I, I've not seen the case where someone diligently read the diff and saw someone was like, oh no, I did something wrong there. It's a different test that breaks and tells them that. Interesting. So the tools that I'm used to that sort of warn me of that stuff, like if I'm importing something that then I'm not using, or if I'm exporting something I'm not using, and in this particular case, you want to be cautious that you don't expose something that then some other place in the code could use it and you want to keep it private. That feels like something I would rely on a linter for instead of for like a test specifically. So that's pretty interesting to me to have like a test around that. I don't know if you could update or configure a linter to also catch those sort of issues. So then it's less of like a snapshot test, but it's more of like a, a linting that you would then notice. But then also you'd have to set up your continuous integration or something to fail to let you know to sort of like run that linting because you may see it locally, but then you want it to still fail at a team level to make sure it doesn't slip through if someone doesn't notice it locally or chooses to not address it. So yeah, I could see some some useful benefits there. For the snapshot testing, can you configure it to just leverage one instead of the other? Like, So if you wanted to use just for testing, that sort of like keeping stuff private, but not necessarily test the user vision or design, is that something you can set? Uh, yeah, I mean, each snapshot test is essentially a just test that stands on its own and you say, expect foo to match snapshot. And so that tells just the first time you see this test, dump out a snapshot. And then cool, it's the first time, so it's definitely good. 
And then from there, it does a comparison as part of the test. It looks at the serialized snapshot on disk that it has, and then the current one that the test is producing. But those are still test cases that are running alongside all of the rest of them. So you can opt into or out of this whenever. And actually, one of the things that concerns me about it is I see occasionally folks reaching for this as the primary means of testing their application or their components. And that is a thing that's troubling because I don't think they're sufficient to really constrain the behavior of a system. But now you can check the box and say like, yep, I've tested. And again, I just don't really feel like they're doing that job. So they're almost like a, a false confidence sort of thing. Whereas actually coming back to what you said about the import export, I would love if we could push this sort of stuff into linting because linting, I tend to have a more rapid feedback. It's like my editor is doing that as I'm typing. And that works with imports, but it won't work with exports because the whole idea is like we are purposefully exposing things from this for other people to use, but there's no way for the system to know definitively what we should and shouldn't be exporting. That's like the decision of the team as to what's the public API of this package that we want to produce. And so unless the computers get way smarter, I don't know how they could figure that one out for us. So we have to figure out a way to test it. And that, like I said, I absolutely loved that usage of snapshot testing, but it's sort of a rare outlier in my mind. And in general, I would prefer React testing library is my new favorite thing. And that's what I want to be doing basically all of my testing in or testing library slash React. I think they renamed it and it's that now, but. Mm, okay. So snapshot testing, but in smaller ways to keep stuff private and less relying on it for a lot of your unit and integration testing. And then, you know, I don't think I've ever worked on a project where like the the UI has been important enough that I also really want to test to make sure that the UI doesn't changes. Like I still want my integration test to make sure that the functionality that the user can perform is there and that it works as expected. But if something changes colors or if something changes its style, like that's something I've never tested before. I've heard of some other people that have tested it and really appreciated it, but that's not something I've run into myself where I've ever felt the need to test at that level. I don't think I've done it myself either, but I know of a few tools. So visual regression testing is my understanding of the umbrella there. And a component module like the one that I'm working on right now is actually a perfect example of where we might reach for that. And I've worked with other teams where the component module that they had internally, they did set up that sort of visual regression testing because it it was very important to them that stylistically things remain the same. Whereas testing is not free, like all testing has a maintenance cost and a cognitive overhead and a runtime cost and all those things. And so I agree with you. Often when we're thinking about our application, there are other tests that I prioritize much more highly. But yeah, it's interesting. How do you pick which tests to write and at which level? It's a big question. But yeah, so that's one side of the testing adventures that I've gone on this week. Uh, There was another actually really interesting one related to the end-to-end tests. So that has been a real adventure the whole time I've been on this project. They've been something that we've had to work on and iterate on and try and figure out how to get running. But one of the things that I did very early on, well, actually, I'm going to tell the story in the order that I experienced it. All of the end-to-end tests were failing on someone's branch. And I looked at it and it was just screenshots of the application showing the failure state like at that point in time what did the app look like and it was just a white screen there was just nothing there and i was like huh that's weird but there was also another failure because staging had broken so someone else's branch was failing for different reasons for a little while we got confused but then we eventually came back to it was like no 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 this one actually seems broken what's going on here and so digging into it it turns out that the app was not booting at all or like the app would like the client-side bundle, when we tried to run it, there was an error that was happening. And what was interesting is 
The only reason we caught this was because a while back we changed from running the end-to-end tests against the dev server on CircleCI. That was the previous way that we were doing it. We changed over to instead build the app, produce the bundle, the final JavaScript bundle, and then put a tiny little server in front of that and run the end-to-end tests against that built artifact. Uh, and the goal there was to get closer to production, get that that parity with real production. And in this case, it was really interesting because in development mode, everything was fine. No issues whatsoever. But once we built the app, it, it was a weird issue related to ES6 modules and imports and exports and something was not a function, is undefined, I don't know, some JavaScript error that was very surprising because it only happened in production, but it was really nice that the end-to-end tests, because we were running them against a more production-like system, actually caught it. Otherwise, we would have just had staging be a white screen for a little while. I wonder how many developer conversations are taking place right now that includes the word some JavaScript error. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's that same error that we've all seen. Undefined is not a function. No matter how hard you try, undefined will never be a function. You've been quite on the journey of when it comes to like CI and test issues and just debugging some complex stuff between your journey last week where you had an issue with CI where it was lacking like an import or lacking uh, a third party. I've already forgotten about that whole adventure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've already forgotten. Ginseng is looking for Ginseng or something like that. It was, but that's an arbitrary detail. I just, it lost the, I don't know what happened. At least this one, I know. Well, actually, I don't know what happened. It was something about the bundler was doing something wrong. We had to restructure the imports to make it not happen. But it wasn't, it didn't entirely make sense. At least this one was deterministic. It failed in the one version of the code. We changed the code, then it passed. Everything was good. Our tests saved us. Cool. I can live in that world. The other last week world where stuff broke for a while, and then I don't know. That was bad. I didn't like that. Yeah, I'm with you. At least when it is deterministic like that, like you said, there's something, even if you don't fully understand it, you feel confident as to when it's broken and when it's working versus in the other world, you just have no idea. My entire journey as a developer is just seeking determinism wherever I can find it. (laughs) Seeking determinism. That sounds like a great bumper sticker. Mm. But yeah, I think that uh, about rounds out my adventures in the land of testing this week. So actually today, for those of you at home, it won't be this date. But for us here in the studio, it is in fact February 14th. So Steph, you had a particular topic that you wanted uh, to dig into today. So it was a while back. I wish I could remember the exact circumstances around when I created it. But you and I, when we think of good topics that we want to discuss on the bike shed, we'll create Trello cards for those and then just throw in a bit of context for it. And then as we're looking for things we want to discuss, we'll go back through that list. So one day I was very excited to talk about refactoring and I titled it a love letter to refactoring. So I was clearly in a very good mood and refactoring had done something very positive for me that day that led to the creation of that topic. And I immediately uh, replied, yes, absolutely, let us talk about that. That speaks to everything that I believe about the world. So yeah, we're very much in sync on that. I also added that perhaps it's not a love letter for everyone, that my title is clearly biased to some of the experiences that I've had. And some of the stuff around it, sort of like, what is refactoring? Uh, When do we choose to do it? What approaches do we take when we're refactoring? And then have you ever refactored code and then reverted that refactor? I think that's the one I'm really interested in hearing your experiences on. That sounds great. Well, it's an interesting one. Uh, Yes, I have. And it breaks my heart (laughs) when I do it. (laughs) But yeah, the, I mean, the whole goal of refactoring is to make the code base better. And sometimes it's an exploration. And I get to the end of it. I'm like, never mind, not better. Uh, I end up getting overly clever. And then I look at the code and I'm like, that's not any more clear or useful. 
But that's actually one of the things that I love about refactoring is it's a time to explore and possibly to be somewhat creative in what is otherwise a somewhat rigid world that we work in. Yeah, I love refactoring. And so having to say goodbye to a refactoring that I thought might be good is sad. But at the end of the day, the goal is to make the code clearer. So I've definitely said goodbye to some errant refactorings. (laughs) I assume you have as well. I have. Yeah, I've done that as well, where I have seen code and it's been a bit difficult for me to read at first. I think there's a couple reasons I've walked myself out of refactoring. And I usually go in with the intent of doing exactly what you said, where I'm striving to make the code clear and easier to extend or to make a change to it. So I guess we could back up a little bit to sort of like, when do you do it? And for me, I will typically approach a refactor when I see code that I'm having trouble understanding. And if I see something, I'm like, oh, I I now have the context. I've had a conversation with someone and I now understand what this is doing. And I think this would be a great time to sort of refactor this code to document and to highlight the understanding. So the next reader that comes along will have a clearer picture of what this code is doing. That's typically one approach. The other one is if I'm introducing perhaps like a new feature, I need to make a change, but I realize that that work really doesn't integrate with the existing system, that I'll look for a way to make the code open, and then I'll make the code open. And then in a second commit or something after that, then I'll make that change. So sort of following that whole like, make the change easy, which may be hard, but then make making the easy change And then I have walked myself out of refactorings when I have tried to make the code clear and I've realized that I failed and that it's it's really no different than the state that it was before. Or I found that also, yeah, the too clever. I think that's the one I've done before too, where I thought trying to refactor or dry it up would lead to a better state. And I realized that I haven't improved the code at that point and I may have even hurt some of the readability to it. Yeah, that, that all um, definitely makes sense. And what you're describing feels to me a little bit more like the refactoring in the large, like big, larger scale refactorings. But when I think of refactoring, it's sort of a continuous practice or in the ideal version of the world, it's a continuous practice. Uh, every time I get the tests to pass, I will probably go back and do a quick refactoring. Or if I'm in a system that has a type system and I'm able to leverage that, when the types, when the system gets back to compiling, when I have a compiler, I fix it, and now the system's compiling, I might poke at it just a little bit. I do a lot of sort of exploratory refactoring and just trying a different shape of the code and then looking at it and seeing if I prefer it. And I'll do that over and over. And it's actually, it's part of the reason that I enjoy TDD or type systems TDD in either case, test-driven development or type-driven development so much is because they give me that rapid feedback with each of those little explorations. I rename a variable, move some things around, make sure it still works. I try a different structure. I see if, actually, can I just list.map here instead of doing something else? So I absolutely love having that feedback cycle that allows me to get a bunch of iterations in different shapes of the code, different names, different structures, different APIs, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a fabulous point. I love that you mentioned you do the refactoring like they're something that we're doing constantly and something that we're incorporating into our workflow. It's not something that's necessarily like a big task that we're taking on and then tackling that larger refactor, but it's something that we're doing along the way. And that may be one of the reasons I was excited to talk about this topic at the time, because I have often started out where I'm trying to be too clever in the beginning where I'm working on something and I want it to be perfect and beautiful code and all sort of the vague definitions that go along with those feelings. 
And I've learned over time to really trust more of my instinct and make the code work first and start to understand more of the system and how the feature is going to work and to write the test so that way I have the functionality. And then once I've gotten to a state where it's working and I understand more of the path that I'm headed down to then circle back to like, okay, so now that I have this working, what makes sense? Could I make this clear for the next person? Am I missing some test cases? And that's the part that refactoring feels incredibly helpful to me is it's helping me sort of like get out of my own way where I can just focus on getting the job done. And then I can circle back to focusing on some of the the more aesthetics of the code. I like the idea of, of having to trust 20 minutes from now you to do the cleanup work, but I, I definitely do the same thing. And I don't know the quite the right way to frame it, but like I'm I'm not smart enough to both make it work and make it good at the same time. And so I very much value like a two pass approach to that. It's just I have to keep so much less in my head if my goal is just to hyper focus on the one little thing that I'm working on. And then when that's working, zoom back out and see how it looks in context with everything else and be able to switch between those modes. And uh, yeah, refactoring is the magic tool that lets me do it. What I've noticed, I will often get that wrong too. So if I'm too focused on a particular aspect of the code or too focused on a particular mechanics of a class that I will forget the bigger picture. And so sometimes then I have worked really hard to make a class seem perfect and well-contained. And then I'll step back and I'll realize, oh, that's not actually what the system needs to do in this case. And so I've realized that I've gone down the wrong path because I was too fixated on that versus staying like, keep reminding myself to go back to the higher path, stay focused on like the user flow and the functionality. And then I can revisit the lower mechanics when I'm ready to have those tests at my back to let me know and then start the refactoring process. I like the idea of like oscillating between the two levels the focus and then the big picture, the mechanics versus the aesthetics and just kind of in and out and the ability to switch between those two. I really enjoy that like cadence to the day. When I have a really good day, I notice it it sort of takes that approach of like hacking around and just making things work and then cleaning up and making it clear and that that sort of sequence. And like you said, there's sometimes where I like go about it in the wrong order or I need to pop back up to the other level or pop back down. So real quick, I'd actually love to take a step back because I think often we end up talking about refactoring, but people may mean slightly different things or have slightly different ideas in their mind of what that means. So I'm interested in how you might define refactoring. Like what is it and what isn't it in your mind? So if I were explaining code refactoring to someone, I would think it's really where I'm restructuring the existing code that I have, but I'm not changing any of its external behavior. So I'm improving its readability and hopefully reducing some of the complexity. So then it's more maintainable and more expressive for someone to come along and read that code and then add functionality or extend that code. At the end, it doesn't actually change any of that behavior. How's that line up with yours? Pretty much exactly, unsurprisingly. I just figured it was a good thing for us to say out loud. And I think actually the one bit that I believe is exactly what you're saying, but just to say it, the part that needs to stay the same is the user-facing part, whatever that like externally verifiable bit of the system. And at times we can like wrap that box around smaller parts of the application where the user might be another class collaborating, but there always should be some sort of like bounding box that says outside this, nothing can change, but inside we can change whatever we want. Yeah, thank you. That's 
perfect. And also, so for the users, uh, one of the areas I love thinking about a user is not necessarily someone that is using our code through the UI, but also the next developer as a user. So if you're working on a gym or a library, like our users in that case that are consuming your code, those are very much the users in my mind as well, where if I'm refactoring something, I don't necessarily want to change their expected behavior of when they're relying on like an API or relying on that library without, of course, communicating that to them. But since we're in a refactoring space, that shouldn't change. So another question that I have in the world of refactoring for you is how do you feel about deferred refactoring? So you're in the code, you see some stuff that you think it would probably be better if this was different. And the suggestion is let's write that down. Let's put that on the Trello board. Let's put that in a backlog, but let's not do that right now. And let's come back to that refactoring as a distinct thing later. Oh, I have so many, so many feelings. I don't know where to start. <laughs> so there's there's two kind of funny things that come to mind. Uh, one of them, it was, I think it was just last night, I saw a really funny GIF that talks about coming across code and that you need to just make something work and sort of get it out. And you don't have time to apply the, the proper refactoring or changes before pushing it out to the world. And it's a funny GIF of like a astronaut going into space and it has like the subtext of like, well, this little maneuver is going to cost us like 51 years in productivity or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> that just really resonated with me when I saw that. Uh, I'll have to find it. We'll include that in the show notes. It's worth sharing. It's really funny. Then the other one, uh, so it wasn't that long ago when I was working with the team that we stumbled across some code that was tough to understand and a bit complex to work with and make changes to. And we'd surface the idea of it would be great while we have the context right now to go ahead and refactor some of that code so it's easier to work with and a bit clearer to the next reader. And we had enough going on that it was decided that we weren't going to do that refactor. And so as we were moving it into the backlog, I was like, can we just delete that? And the team looked at me and they're like, why would we delete that? And I was like, well, because I mean, let's be honest, we're not going to do that. I realized that sounded harsh when I said it, but I didn't mean it that way. I just meant it in a, we should give ourselves permission to either do it now when we have the context and not do it later and then expect someone to be able to pick up this ticket and understand the value that it's going to provide when they haven't been through the system as we have just now and we know the value that it's going to deliver. So I think it would make more sense to delete it and let that sort of like pain sort of resurface in the future and then tackle the refactor then. I'm often in the camp when it comes to refactoring that it's important to do and it's important to do when you have the context. And if you're going to put it off and put it into a backlog, you might as well just let yourself say, I'm not going to do it. And we're going to wait until the next time that it slows us down. And then we're going to address it. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, I agree 100% with all of that. I think there's occasionally the like very large scale refactoring that you'll defer just because you know it's going to absolutely decimate productivity for a week or two and you need to sort of get organizational buy-in and make sure everybody's on the same page for that. But otherwise, I'm a huge fan of refactoring when you see it. I've been on the receiving end of many well-intentioned refactoring cards, tech deck cards, and I'll pick them up. I'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about person who wrote this card you seem to really care that this code got changed in a certain way but i don't i don't know what you mean i don't know why i don't know what the better version what's the there's so much context that gets lost it's so hard to capture all of that and put it into a card and so i'm really of the like either do it when you're in there or don't do or do not there is no try i think a lot of refactoring also comes down to a lot of trust between the team and the developers that are doing it to trust the developer that they are focused on making the improvements that they can without having 
too large of an impact. So they're very focused on improving a section of the code. Because I do think it's very easy that once you start refactoring to have a larger impact where you start seeing, well, what if I refactor this? And then what if I refactor that? And you start pulling in and having scope creep with your work. So I think there's a lot of trusting the person who is saying there's refactoring that needs to be done here that's going to improve our productivity down the road. But it's okay if it slows us down right now because it'll be better in the end. And if you have a team that can say, yes, we trust you on this and we trust you that it is a valuable decision. And also for the developer or the person who sees that opportunity to be able to express the value there, I think is something that comes with tenure. And then also just sort of, again, that trust with the team. Unsurprisingly, we, we tend to uh, be somewhat in sync on these things. But yeah, it was essentially, how do we think about trust and why is there resistance to refactoring? If you and I are both, you know, want to write a love letter to it, why doesn't everybody always be refactoring? And I think you just encapsulated it perfectly of it's about trust and it's about communication. And sometimes that fails. And when it does, then, you know, we can lose our privileges, but it's important to maintain that. So yeah, no, you, you did it. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> See, how how am I ever going to do the show without you, Chris? Like we're clearly we're clearly in tune with each other. <laughs> well, I don't really know how to respond to that, but uh, you you will find a way. You are a fantastic host in and of yourself and whoever joins you in the future will be I'm sure fantastic as well. Ah, uh, thank you. I know. It's just going to be tough transitioning away because this is one of the highlights of my week is getting to chat with you. But on that tough note, <laughs> uh shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.